the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Wayne Grudem. He is the author of uh, Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. It's a big volume, but it's written for, well, you and I to better understand what the scriptures teach if we really do want to please God. So we'll talk with him in the five o'clock hour. Looking forward to that. Well, taking a look at some of the developing news stories, President Trump's uh, uh, tweets that joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea would be suspended as a gesture of goodwill toward North Korea, while warning that the exercises could relaunch far bigger than ever before if he wants them to. At least 1,500 people pay their final respects to Senator John McCain at the Arizona State Capitol. He died of brain cancer last Saturday at age 81. It's just the beginning of what will be a days-long remembrance. And a professor who was reportedly a confidential source in the FBI's Russia probe is at the center of the Department of Justice complaint that alleges wasted taxpayer dollars, according to interviews and documents received. CNN defends its reporting on the controversial Trump Tower story amid backpedaling from its confidential source. And a judge on Wednesday released three suspects tied to the New Mexico compound where alleged Muslim extremists reportedly trained children to become school shooters after charges against them were dropped because authorities missed a 10-day limit for a hearing to establish probable cause. Well, President Trump uh, today tweeted that there was no reason for joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea, dubbing them costly while describing his relationship with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un as very good and warm. However, he signaled that he could restart them if he wanted to, promising that he would go bigger uh, than ever before. The president tweeted a White House statement in which he said he believed the rogue regime was experiencing tremendous pressure from China amid trade disputes with the U.S. Simultaneously, North Korea was acquiring considerable aid from China, which is not helpful, he continued. While the statement went on to insist that any issues between the United States and China would be taken care of by the president's uh, Trump, uh, Trump, rather, (laughs) that was not Freudian, Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping, who have a very strong relationship. And at least 1,500 people paid respects to Senator John McCain, who succumbed to an aggressive form of brain cancer on Saturday as they streamed past his closed flag-draped casket at the Arizona Capitol. Well-wishers had been waiting in line in the withering summer heat. The high of, in Phoenix was about 104, some four hours, to take part in the public viewing on Wednesday. Families with children paid respects. Men paused beside the casket to salute or bow. People came from out of state. They also crossed political lines in the full spectrum of ages. The viewing came on what would have been the Republican senator's 82nd birthday and followed an emotional private ceremony attended by McCain's family and colleagues. By the way, the media is making a big deal out of Sarah Palin not being invited to McCain's funeral. I don't know you received invitations for funeral, but apparently if you're a dignitary, you have to be invited. 
Well, the professor who reportedly assisted the FBI's Russia probe as a confidential source is at the center of a Defense Department whistleblower complaint that alleges government contractor abuses, as well as excessive payments with taxpayer dollars, according to interviews and documents. Well, the complaint was filed by attorney Sean Bigley on behalf of Pentagon lawyer Adam Lovinger. Well, earlier this month, conservative watchdog Judicial Watch announced it was suing the Defense Department on behalf of Lovinger to force the release of emails and other electronic messages after Lovinger had his security clearance suspended. And CNN is not backing down. A full-blown war of words between the first family and CNN broke out late uh, on Wednesday on Twitter, with the cable network mounting an unprecedented attack on President Trump in a jarring official statement defending a widely questioned story. Now, to say that it was a um, an unprecedented attack, now that's saying something because CNN is pretty much 24-7 attack on President Trump. The statement from CNN came after the president mocked journalist Carl Bernstein, who co-wrote the disputed report that Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, was prepared to give a condemning inf- uh, to give condemning information about the president to special counsel Robert Mueller. CNN continues to stand by the story despite growing skepticism by many of its uh, journal. A journalistic colleagues. Make no mistake, Mr. President, CNN does not lie. We report the news and we report when people in power tell lies. CNN stands by our reporting and our reporters. There may be many fools in this story, but Carl Bernstein is not one of them, CNN's public relations department wrote. Well, CNN's scandal shows uh, network uh, cares more about uh, the anti-Trump agenda than accuracy, at least some critics are saying. Well, three suspects tied to a New Mexico compound where alleged Muslim extremists reportedly trained children to be school shooters were released from custody yesterday, hours after a judge dismissed all of the charges against them. District Judge Emilio Chavez on Wednesday dismissed charges against the three, three of the five defendants, Lucas Morton, Sabana uh, Wahaj and Hujah uh, Wahaj, ruling that authorities violated the state's 10 day rule. Child abuse charges against them were dropped because prosecutors missed that 10-day limit for an evidentiary hearing to establish probable cause. And on this day in 1997, Americans received word of the car crash in Paris that claimed the lives of Princess Diana, Diana rather, her boyfriend, Dodi Fayed, and their driver, Henry Paul. Because of the time difference, it was August the 31st where the crash occurred. And in 1967, on this day, the Senate confirmed the appointment of Thurgood Marshall as the first African-American justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. On this day in 1963, the hotline communications link between Washington and Moscow goes into operation. Oh, and isn't there a hotline now? Instead of holding class, teachers in several districts in the state of Washington held signs demanding their uh, fair wages. Multiple school districts in southwest Washington didn't start school on Wednesday as planned and says uh, the frustrated, we just want it to be settled. Hmm. Frustration is growing as teachers strikes continues in the state of Washington, says uh, the Washington Education Association spokesperson, Rich Wood. This is really a unique situation. We've never had this many teachers on strike in multiple school districts in the same county, as far as I know, in the last 20 years and probably never in the history of teacher strikes in Washington state. Well, as the first day keeps getting pushed back, frustrations are high among everyone involved. We just want it to be settled as quickly as possible so we can get back to our classrooms, get back to our students, so my kids can get back to their classrooms. 
Uh, Bethany Rivard of the Washington Education Association said teachers said they would rather be in their classrooms. The teachers are not wanting to, to be doing this at the beginning of the school, explained Deidre Oswald, a teacher in the Evergreen School District. We would much rather be in there, referring to the school, in the building with our students doing our jobs. Well, the district is uh, disappointed. Um, school did not start on time, uh, says um, Pat Nuzo with Vancouver Public Schools. I think we are disappointed. There's a strike going on. We're just doing the best we can. This is the first time that we've ever done this. So it's a new territory. Uh, parents are left struggling to find uh, child care. Many said that they're taking turns watching kids for one another. There's a little bit of concern, mostly about where is everything going to um, uh Everybody rather going to put their kids during the day while they're working. Nicole Sawyer, a president of a, a, a parent rather of a student in the Vancouver School District, you know. But it, a lot of us in this community, I guess we're uh, just lucky enough to be a pretty tight community. So they're helping to take care of one another. No contract negotiations took place on Wednesday in the Evergreen School District, so there was never a chance the school would start on Thursday. Negotiations continued in the Vancouver School District, but no agreement has been reached. School uh, will not start on Thursday, August the. 30th either. So um, it's just a sit, wait, and see as negotiations may or may not be taking place. We'll try to keep you posted. We're going to take a quick break. About 16 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Dr. Wayne Grudem. His latest book is Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. Great resource. I know I'm looking forward to putting it in my library after our interview is over uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, personal and corporate income tax collections were higher than uh, forecast as job growth remains strong here in Oregon. State economists said uh, yesterday all industries are expected to grow this year and next with construction, professional and business services, leisure hospitality leading the way. State economists said also on Wednesday construction jobs uh, grew by 9% in 2018 fiscal year and were expected to grow another 4% in fiscal year 2019. Well, the housing market revived. The construction numbers continue to come in above our expectations. Again, senior economist Josh Lerner or Lenner uh, told the House Interim Committee on Revenue. Well, second quarter personal income tax collections were $85.7 million from the June forecast. Personal income taxes make up 85 to 90 percent of the state's general fund. He went on to say second quarter corporate income tax collections were up $21.4 million from the June forecast. All that said, a personal kicker tax refund of $686 million is projected to go out in the first half of 2020. 2020, it's only 2018 now. Well, it's the second largest in the state's history, but because the population has grown, the kickers per capita are expected to be on par with what typical kicker size would be. Well, the average payment to taxpayers is projected to be about $336. Those in the highest adjusted gross income brackets of 401 thousand dollars and above can expect six thousand seven hundred and eighty seven dollars those earning about twenty six thousand dollars to forty seven thousand per year can expect one hundred and sixty nine dollars the kickers are uh, returned in the form of credits i kind of liked getting the check it was exciting to get that check and to be able to do something with it but apparently that was too expensive and so now we just get the uh, the credit but it's coming but you won't uh, see it until twenty twenty 
Well, newly released police records indicate that Portland police officers responded when U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE officers, called emergency dispatchers for help during this summer's Occupy ICE PDX protest. Well, previously, the ICE union complained that local police didn't show up because Portland's mayor ordered them not to intervene. Well, the records obtained by KGW through a public records request provide a summary of 911 calls surrounding the Occupy ICE protest and the response from Portland police. Full incident reports were not included. It's not clear how long officers were on the scene and what action was taken when they did respond, but the records detail 56 calls to emergency dispatchers. Many of the calls appear to come from neighbors or people who work near the ICE office in southwest Portland. The callers complained about disorderly conduct, noise, and traffic. Police handled some of the complaints by phone while others required an officer to respond on scene. Two of those incidents specifically identify ICE employees as calling emergency dispatchers. On the 19th of June, an ICE worker complained of vandalism to her car. Employee leaving ICE facility was leaving the facility in his uh, vehicle when he was uh, surrounded by protesters, the report said. The records indicate a Portland police officer responded on scene and wrote a report. On the 9th of July, an ICE employee called 911 to report that he was being followed by um, cop watchers, as they're called, who filmed his actions and he felt threatened. He reported they had uh, contacted him several times in the last few days, were calling his personal phone, showed up at his daughter's event. Uh, the police records indicate a Portland police officer responded on scene and wrote a report records show. Now, Showing up on scene, writing a report. What does that mean in terms of dealing with the issue? We don't know. On June the 19th, an unidentified caller complained about the protest blocking the bicycle and pedestrian paths uh, and so on. The the records also indicate the police uh, were told not to intervene in the protest unless tensions escalated. Last month, a lawyer for the National Ice Council sent Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler a cease and desist letter demanding he end a policy of not responding to calls for police services from ICE employees. Wheeler argued there is no such policy. The lawyer representing the ICE union said the newly released records show that the mayor allowed the protest to continue despite repeated calls to 911 from community and ICE employees. This helps complete the picture of what Wheeler did or didn't do regarding enforcing the law equally, Sean Rydell, attorney for the ICE union. Why were the protesters allowed to behave that way? Well, it's um, the back and forth, no doubt, will continue, but at least we have a little more information. Well, if you're over the sweltering heat and humidity that's blanketed much of um, the country this summer, and certainly in our area here in the Pacific Northwest, get ready for a rough winter, they're, they're telling us. Now, in Oregon and Washington, it'll be um, more typical Temperatures will be wet, but the Farmer's Almanac is predicting a colder than normal winter from the Continental Divide on eastward uh, with the teeth-chattering cold arriving in mid-February in the northeast, Great Lakes, and even into the southeast. Contrary to the stories um, storming the web, our time-tested long-range formula is pointing toward a very long, cold, and snow-filled winter. That's what the editor, Peter Geiger, said in a statement on the company's website. We stand by our forecast and formula, which 
uh, accurately predicted the many storms last winter as well as the summer's steamy hot conditions. Well, included in the frigid outlook is um, above average snowfall expected in the Great Lakes and New England area with some snow expected to arrive in the mid-Atlantic and New England by December. As to when the cold may end, the Farmer's Almanac says they are that a stormy March could feature a potential East Coast storm that could keep snow on the ground into spring. The Farmer's Almanac says it bases its long-range forecast on a mathematical and astronomical formula developed back in 1818. It's not to be confused with the rival Old Farmer's Almanac, billed as the oldest periodical in North America, which also issues seasonal weather forecasts. Now, if you're looking for a milder winter ahead, Old Farmer's Almanac is calling for above-normal temperatures almost everywhere in the United States, in addition to more rain instead of snow. So you can decide whose version you want to believe. Our milder-than-normal forecast is due to the decrease in solar activity and the expected arrival of a weak El Nino, which will prevent cold air masses from lingering in the north. That publication notes. Well, a behind-the-scenes look at the massive snow-clearing operation in uh, certain parts of the country uh, may, in fact, be uh, what we can expect. Don't uh, don't go heading to the store for more shovels yet. As meteorologists say, it's nearly impossible to figure out the weather that far ahead, even though people do it all the time. The ability to predict events that far in advance is zero. That's what Penn State meteorologist Paul Knight says, speaking to the Des Moines Register. There's no proven skill. There's no technique that's uh, agreed upon in science to be able to do that. Well, Other meteorologists uh, have also summed up the best way to take the chili predictions with a grain of salt. So you can take it or leave it. Listen to the Farmer's Almanac or the Old Farmer's Almanac or seasoned meteorologists who say, eh, no, we don't know, which is probably more accurate than not. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the fact that mourners gathered in Arizona today to um, remember John McCain, who's now in Washington, D.C., will he lie in state for a day and then have a final memorial service in Washington on Saturday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. While people waved American flags and campaign-style signs along the side of the road Thursday, as the motorcade carrying Senator John McCain's body traveled from the state capitol to a church for a second day of memorial services for the Maverick politician, former prisoner of war, and two-time presidential candidate. Family members watched in silence as uniformed military members removed the senator's flag-draped casket from the black hearse and carried it into the North Phoenix Baptist uh, Church for a commemoration featuring Vice President Joe Biden and other dignitaries. As the hearse made its way along the eight-mile Uh, route. People had held signs that read simply McCain and cars on the other side of the highway stopped or slowed down to a crawl in apparent tribute. A few firefighters saluted uh, from atop fire engines parked on the uh, overpass uh, where the 11 vehicle motorcade with a 17 motorcycle police escort passed underneath on Interstate 17. McCain died last Saturday of brain cancer at 81. Today would have been his 82nd birthday. The crowd of 3,500 inside the church stood silently as the casket was placed before a set of floral arrangements and McCain's family entered behind it. Uh, Vice President Biden 
um, sitting uh, uh, 24 sitting U.S. senators, four former senators and other leaders were expected to attend that memorial service. During the uh, private service at the Capitol for family and friends, Cindy McCain pressed her face against her husband's coffin and daughter Megan McCain erupted in sobs. McCain's son, Doug, Jack and Jimmy, daughter Sydney and daughter-in-law, Renee, shook hands with some of the thousands of people who filed past the senator's flag-draped casket to pay their final respects. About a thousand seats for the uh, service today in the church uh, were made available to members of the general public who signed up. Michael Fellers was among those awaiting the motorcade outside the church. The uh, Marines, uh, the Marine veteran, rather, said that he was also the fourth person in line Wednesday to attend the public viewing at the Capitol. He was about the only politician that I have ever known who cared for the people in this country, and he tried his level best to make it better place in which to live. Honor Guard member Valentine uh, Castellez uh, praised McCain for championing the military during his Senate career. He's done so much for us, he said. He stood watch earlier this week while McCain's body was at a funeral home. A choir from the Jesuit-run Brophy College Preparatory School that uh, two of McCain's sons attended was scheduled and sang Amazing Grace and Arizona during the church service. The music chosen for the recession was Frank Sinatra's signature song, My Way, paying tribute to a man who became known uh, for following his own path based on his personal principles. Well, the much smaller service at the Capitol was filled with affecting uh, moments and demonstrations of deep respect for the statesman and Navy pilot who was held prisoner by the North Vietnamese for five and a half years after being shot down over Hanoi. Governor Doug Ducey remembered McCain as Arizona's favorite adopted son and what would have been his 82nd birthday. The Capitol was then open to the public in the afternoon, allowing visitors to walk past the closed casket after waiting in line outside in temperatures that reached 104 degrees a 40 degrees Celsius. Well, inside former military members in shorts and T-shirts saluted. Others placed their hands over their hearts and bowed, including Vietnamese-born residents who traveled from Southern California. It was a, a moving day, and some um, some of the words that were spoken over uh, his casket were truly moving. Whether or not you agreed with um, John McCain's politics and priorities as a veteran, you certainly had to uh, to honor his service there. And to hear comments about the kind of man that he was in his private life was also uh, very inspiring. Well, House investigators were left with more questions than answers after Justice Department official Bruce Orr, his eight hours of testimony. Here are a few things that we learned from that testimony. Well, not we necessarily, but those present from the two uh, congressional committees or admitted that the FBI had serious doubts about the infamous Steele dossier. Nevertheless, it was still used to get a warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. We learned that some of Orr's testimony conflicted with statements provided by Fusion GPS chief Glenn Simpson and former FBI lawyer Lisa Page. Representative uh, Matt Gates said it's become very clear that there are a number of factual conflicts. Either Bruce Orr is lying or Glenn Simpson's lying. Keep in mind that Orr's wife, Nellie, worked with Glenn Simpson at Fusion GPS. We also learned that Orr reportedly gave House investigators a list of a half dozen top justice and FBI officials who he claims were aware of his connection to Steele and the dossier. Yet, according to a recent ABC News report, some justice officials are trying to throw Orr under the bus, claiming nobody knew. He didn't tell anybody. It was completely outside the scope of what he was asked to do. It wasn't even close to his job, end quote. Orr was also asked how many times Robert Mueller had interviewed him, and the answer was apparently none. 
Gary Bauer writes of this uh, list of disclosures, if Mueller's mandate is to get to the bottom of Russian collusion in the election rather than prosecuting old cases of tax evasion, i.e. Manafort and Cohen, he should be investigating the Clinton campaign where there is plenty of evidence of Russian collusion. He writes, but Mueller clearly doesn't care about the violations of law and ethical standards that Justice Department officials engaged in trying to smear Donald Trump. And that is why it is even more disturbing that Orr hasn't reportedly talked to John Huber yet. Well, as we know, Attorney General Sessions recused himself from the investigation into Russian collusion and the Trump campaign, much uh, to the the frustration of the president that is oft repeated. But Sessions should have full control over the Huber investigation. If these reports are true, that Huber has not talked to Orr yet, Sessions uh, needs to um, uh, light a fire under Mr. Huber, A-S-A-C-A-P. Well, it goes on um, uh, from from there. Uh, something to keep in mind, um, uh, according to the Department of Education, there are, well, I won't even go into that. I won't even, I'm going to move past that. Also on Tuesday, another member of the uh, Obama-era Justice Department's deep state gave his testimony, uh, Mr. Orr, that's been raising some eyebrows over What's true, what's false, and so on. Well, Republican Representative Louis Gomer doubled down after the FBI dismissed claims that a Chinese state-owned company hacked former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's private email server. Partisan politics, sadly, are very much at play within some of the leadership at the FBI. That's what the Texas congressman said in a statement late yesterday. Well, the Daily Caller first reported that the FBI was notified of a purported hack in 2015 when the intelligence community inspector general warned the Bureau of the intrusion. The hack reportedly implanted code that generated a courtesy copy for almost all of Clinton's emails, which was then forwarded to the Chinese company. Well, a source briefed on the matter confirmed uh, the details of the caller's reporting. Gomert also had told uh, news sources on Tuesday that the emails were obtained by a foreign country's intelligence, though he declined to name the country in question. But on Wednesday, the FBI sharply disputed the claim, saying it has not found any evidence that servers were compromised, end quote. Well, in his overnight statement, Gomert uh, argued it was the ICIG, not the FBI, that discovered the breach. He said the FBI conveniently omitted that detail. Well, if not, it's not surprising, he goes on to say, that the FBI has not found any evidence regarding Clinton's server being breached. Gomer, who's uh, out of Texas, he said it was the Obama-appointed intelligence community inspector general, that's what the ICIG, intelligence community inspector general, that discovered the breach. It was not the FBI that found it. So their statement was technically correct, but very deceptive in its omission. Well, the FBI also had referred uh, to the Justice Department's inspector general report, which was released in June to push back on uh, callers reporting. Well, or rather the callers reporting that report, which examined the FBI's handling of the investigation into Clinton's private email server and her handling of classified information detailed how the FBI conducted an intrusion analysis into the server to look for evidence of a breach. Yet even that report acknowledges um, those efforts were limited. Well, the report notes the FBI was limited in its intrusion analysis due to the FBI's inability to recover all service uh, server equipment and the lack of uh, complete server data for the relevant time period, end quote. Well, the report also notes that the FBI identified vulnerabilities in Clinton's server system and found that there had been numerous unsuccessful attempts to potential 
uh, by potentially malicious actors to exploit those vulnerabilities. Well, the report quotes an FBI forensics agent who said he did not believe there was any way of determining 100 percent whether Clinton's servers had been compromised, but felt fairly confident that there wasn't was not an intrusion. Well, uh, Gohmert's uh, first uh, first raised this issue of the breach at the former FBI special agent uh, Peter Strzok's public testimony on Capitol Hill last month, asking whether Strzok was briefed about any anomaly on the uh, former Secretary of State's emails found by the in- Inspector General. Well, Strzok said uh, he remembered meeting with the ICIG officials, but did not remember the details of that meeting. Well, the representative uh, raised Uh, That exchange in his overnight statement saying, when I asked Peter Strzok about this, he said that he remembered being briefed by the ICIG investigator, but did not remember what was uh, what it was about. That is not credible, Gohmert said, while accusing Strzok of trying to protect Clinton. Well, a spokesman uh, for Clinton told the Daily Caller that the FBI spent thousands of hours investigating and found no evidence of intrusion. That's a fact. The ICIG declined to comment, but Strzok was part of the mid-year exam team of, at the FBI, the Bureau's code word for the Clinton investigation. Strzok, who served on special counsel Robert Mueller's team until his anti-Trump text messages were discovered, lost his security clearance in July and was fired from the FBI earlier this month. It's difficult to tie all of the um, disparate uh, parts of this puzzle together, uh, but that's the latest, at least with regard to uh, the, the suggestion by the ICIG, the intelligence community's inspector general, that there is, in fact, evidence that the Chinese hacked uh, the Clinton email server. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and Senator Bob Portman of uh, Ohio will be introduce Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, at his confirmation hearings next week, according to the Senate Judiciary Committee. The committee announced uh, on Tuesday that joining Rice and Portman in introducing Kavanaugh will be Lisa Blatt, a liberal Supreme Court litigator. Blatt, who clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, has argued 35 cases before the Supreme Court, of which she has won 33. She, too, will be testifying or at least presenting Judge Kavanaugh. And again, Brett Kavanaugh will be uh, the the hearings, his confirmation hearings in the Judiciary uh, Committee will begin next week. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. Wow. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Wayne Grudem. His latest book is Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. 52.1% of kids live in households getting means-tested government assistance in this country today. Will they be called the welfare generation? Well, today there are Americans under 18 years of age growing up in a country where the majority of their peers live in households that take means-tested assistance from the government. In 2016, according to the most recent data from the Census Bureau, uh, some uh, There were approximately 75 million people under 18 in the United States. 
38 million of them, uh, or 52.1 percent, resided in households in which one or more persons received benefits from the means-tested government program. Now, these included the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps, Medicaid, public housing, Supplemental Security Income, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants and Children, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and the National School Lunch Program. The Census Bureau published its data on the number of uh, percentage of persons living in households that received means-tested government assistance in its its, uh, current population survey detailed tables for poverty. Uh, That doesn't mean every person in the household received the aid themselves, only that one or more persons living in that household uh, did. And that's a higher number than we've seen uh, in recent years. Well, recent uh, First Amendment uh, rulings by the Supreme Court could force courts and university administrators to take a closer look at controversial practices that have marginalized certain political views, often conservative ones, on campus. Free speech on campus has emerged as a pretty hot debate in recent years, and with a rash of speakers being disinvited or violently protested. Well, these issues are often handled in-house, but now the courts could hold sway. We should expect college campuses to truly be marketplaces of ideas where students learn to value free speech and open inquiry and take that lesson with them as they become the next generation of judges, legislators, teachers and voters. Casey Maddox, who's a senior fellow for free speech and toleration at the Liberation Charles Koch Institute, well, one key ruling could be the Janus versus American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees, which struck a direct blow to public employee unions by holding government workers uh, don't have to pay certain fees to labor groups. But it included a free speech component that could have a ripple effect on campus. Well, most public universities require students to pay student activity fees, which in some cases support lopsided politics, according to a report by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, a campus free speech group also known as FIRE. Well, the Supreme Court had rejected a 2000 uh, challenge of uh, two such fees, determining a school could require students to pay for the expression of views with which they disagree, as long as the university doesn't engage in viewpoint discrimination when allocating funds. However, the Janus decision more broadly prevents forcing one person to pay for someone else's political expression. Well, Maddox argued schools may have uh, may have to then take a close look at whether their student fees are used in a partisan way. Ironically, cracking down on on these fees could free up student groups to um, bring more speakers onto campus, in turn representing a more diverse set of views. So this is something to watch in the days ahead. Well, currently, many universities limit student group fundraising and prohibit dues, uh, essentially requiring students to uh, to be funded from uh, those mandatory fees. Uh, Maddox went on to say, also the former senior counsel for academic freedom at the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, if student groups could raise their own funds for speakers and have members pay dues, they could fund their own speakers even without mandatory uh, mandatory views. Well, public universities have long made news for blocking speakers, mostly from the uh, from the right, uh, such as Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, and Coulter, but also some on the left, including Bill Maher and William Ayers. Fire, the legal group, even assembled a, a disinvitation database of blocked speakers. Similar to Janice, other recent cases don't directly speak to campus free speech, but could establish new precedents, Maddox points out. The Supreme Court in Minnesota votes uh, Voters Alliance versus Mansky. They struck down a Minnesota law that prevented anyone in close proximity of a polling place from 
wearing certain political-oriented clothing and apparel. The high court held the Minnesota law gave too much discretion to the interpretation of a polling worker or election judge, but it said states can regulate expression near polling places if it is guided by objective, workable standards. Now, this could push public universities and colleges to set more uh, finite guidelines to determine how student fees are spent to avoid viewpoint discrimination. Well, the Mansky decision means that universities will need to guarantee they have systems in place to prevent discrimination against student groups seeking recognition, funding, or to reserve meeting space. So this is, uh, this is significant. The states in Missouri, Arizona, Virginia, Utah, Colorado, Tennessee... North Carolina and Wisconsin all passed free speech laws for college campuses, according to an American Association of University Professors report uh, back in April. Most of these laws prohibit limiting speech to fr- uh, limiting speech to free speech zones and bars without uh, and bars rather viewpoint discrimination. Um, these laws have been opposed, and that's probably. Uh, Not altogether surprising, but there is a move afoot that could have an impact. Even if the current political environment uh, poses significant problems for free speech, the view that the free exchange of ideas uh, no longer occurs on campuses is grossly exaggerated, says the group that opposes this move. Many of the most difficult issues surrounding free speech at present are about uh, balancing unobstructed uh, dialogue with the need to make all constituencies on campus feel included. Well, the Supreme Court and National Institute Institute of Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA versus Becerra, also struck down a California law regulating professional speech by requiring pro-life pregnancy centers to provide information on abortion. Maddox anticipates this could impact how certain professional schools and universities' degree programs have used professional ethics codes as speech codes for students. So, um, again, several Supreme Court decisions could have an impact on the uh, implied censorship on college and university campuses, a rather interesting development. And the only incomplete um, 9-11 memorial site in the country gets its final major component this year. The Tower of Voices, the final part of the Flight 96 National Memorial, is making its debut on September 9th in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, the National Park Service says, um, 17 years after the terrorist attack occurred. The tower, standing 93 feet tall, is um, uh, represents United Airlines Flight 93. Will have 40 wind chimes to represent each of the 40 passengers and crew members killed in the plane's hijacking. National Park Service's Chief of Interpretation and Education, Mary Jo Hartman, uh, reveals 40, 40 rather is a very significant number. She said, adding that 40 degree angles are seen throughout the structure. She noted that the number 40 also represents Flight 93's angle of impact, as well as the degree of the branches on the a hemlock tree that were destroyed by that plane. Lorraine Bay was a senior flight attendant on that United Airlines flight. And for families like Bay's, this memorial will serve as a reminder of the lives lost. She was the cool older sister that I never had, said Bay's uh, cousin. Uh, Wishing you um, lasting success in all your endeavors. Love, Lorraine. Root read aloud from a note his cousin had given him. He said he uh, always looked toward uh, the family um, gatherings because she was going to be there. Well, this will be the first 9-11 celebration, or not celebration, but commemoration in which this memorial will be in place. We also know that the city of New York is approaching a terrible milestone. Nearly 10,000 people have suffered cancers linked to the toxic dust and smoke at Ground Zero. 
The Post is um, is reporting with the 17th anniversary of the 9-11-2001 terror attacks a, a few days away. The Federal World Trade Center Health Program has counted 9,795 uh, first responders, downtown workers, residents, students and others with cancer deemed 9-11 related. In all, more than 1,700 responders and others affected have died including 420 of those stricken with cancer. 9-11 is still killing, says John Feel, an advocate for the World Trade Center responders. Sadly, this fragile community of heroes and survivors is shrinking by the day. The number of cancer patients has rapidly risen since the federal program started tracking the disease in 2013. We get these referrals 15 or 20 times a week, says Dr. Michael Crane, medical director at the World Trade Center Health Program at Mount Sinai Hospital. The increase is not surprising. Cancers have various latency periods, typically emerging years after exposure to harmful substances. In addition, the average age of ground zero workers and others affected has risen from 38 to 55. Some are in their 70s. In an aging population, you're going to see a rising cancer rate no matter what, Crane went on to say. But epidemiologically, studies um, have confirmed that 9-11 rescue and recovery workers have significantly higher rates of thyroid cancer and skin melanoma, which is potentially fatal, than uh, found in the general population and face a higher risk of bladder cancer. Non-responders have had significantly higher rates of breast cancer and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Cancers raising red flags include leukemia and other blood cell disorders. Well, the growing tally of lost 9-11 heroes include um, a firefighter, John McNamara, who died of colon cancer at age 44, veteran firefighter Ray Pfeiffer, 59, and John McKee, 49, to top CUNY official who joined the search and rescue efforts. Before dying from 9-11-related cancer on Saturday, hero firefighter Chief Ronald um, also died. The living cancer um, victims face an ongoing struggle. That anniversary approaching the 17th year this year. Five o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back right after. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Wayne Grudem. He's the author of Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. A great uh, large volume, but one that I think you'll find very, very useful. Well, another adoption agency is closing its doors at a time when thousands of young victims of the opioid crisis flood America's foster care system. This time, it's Catholic Charities of Buffalo, New York. The agency can no longer cooperate with the government there because the state will not allow Catholic Charities to operate consistently with their religious mission. Well, Catholic Charities of Buffalo represents another example and a disturbing trend toward driving out faith-based agencies from America's child welfare, welfare system entirely. It's a trend that could cause children immeasurable harm. Catholic Charities places children in homes with both father and a mother in accordance with Catholic teaching on marriage and family. Unfortunately, the state now considers that belief to be discriminatory. Uh, New York issues an, issued rather an ultimatum, abandon your beliefs or quit your ministry. Catholic Charities is unable to comply with these rules and now must shut down, leaving the state with even fewer agencies to meet the needs of kids. Well, the state of New York is wrong to treat Catholic Charities' religious mission in this manner. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in a majority opinion, 
in Obergfell versus Hodges that those who uphold a traditional view of marriage do so because uh, based rather on uh, decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises. And as Kennedy made clear in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, a religious belief in traditional marriage is not equivalent to discrimination on the basis of sexual identity. And the government cannot target people for their religious beliefs. Americans have to remain free to disagree on the definition of marriage if our civil liberties are to mean something. A government that can pick winners and losers in a debate on important cultural issues retain the power to silence debate uh, on any topic. Everyone is vulnerable to lose their freedom when the state is given license to repress viewpoints it disfavors. Well, the situation becomes even more dire when children hang in the balance, as in New York. Kids become the collateral damage when the government shuts down agencies over their beliefs. Well, unfortunately, what has happened in Buffalo is not an isolated incident. Earlier this year, the city of Philadelphia canceled its contract with Catholic Social Services due to its religious beliefs about marriage, displacing hundreds of children in the process. Meanwhile, the ACLU and Lambda Legal is litigating in Michigan and Texas, rather are litigating in Michigan and Texas in hopes of making these shutdowns the new normal nationwide. Something to keep your eyes and ears um, open on. Well, a federal judge is halting the Pennsylvania House of Representatives policy banning nonbelievers from giving the invocations at the start of legislative floor sessions. U.S. Middle District Judge Christopher Connor on Wednesday sided with atheists, agnostics, freethinkers and humanists who challenged the policy, which limits the opening prayer to those who actually believe in God or a divine or higher power. An invocation. You're in anyway. I don't need to explain that to you. Connor says the uh, restrictions on who may serve as guest chaplain violate the U.S. Constitution's prohibition on making laws that establish a religion. Well, the judge says Republican House Speaker Mike Tuzai, whose office uh, manages the guest chaplains, has denied that people and uh, groups who challenge the policy, the ability to give an invocation, due solely to the uh, non-theistic nature of their beliefs. The judge said that will not be permitted. I'm not sure why you would want to do an invocation if you are not invoking anyone, but that's what the judge said. Fifteen additional states have now joined Nebraska in supporting a Michigan funeral home and their right to fire a transgender employee. Let me give you the background. In 2013, RG and GR, Harris Funeral Homes, terminated the employment of Anthony Stevens after Stevens told a supervisor of his plans to become Amy and transition from being a man to becoming a woman. Well, Stevens intended to bring, begin dressing like and identifying as a woman one year prior to his planned surgery. He'd been employed at the funeral home since 2007 as a funeral director and embalmer. But according to the funeral home owner and president, Thomas Rost, Anthony's dressing like a woman would be a violation of the funeral home's dress code. Furthermore, Rost was also concerned about Anthony using the woman's restroom and said that to employ a man presenting himself as a woman would go against Rost's Christian religious beliefs. Rost is a devout Baptist. Well, after Anthony Stevens was fired, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission filed a lawsuit against the funeral home on Stevens' behalf. Once President Donald Trump was elected, the American Civil Liberties Union began became involved as well, alleging concern that the administration would not be favorable to 
the case. Well, initially, federal district court judge Sean Cox ruled in favor of the Detroit area funeral home, which was represented by well-known First Amendment champion Alliance Defending Freedom. The case was said to rest on whether a funeral home owner could prevent a biological male from wearing a skirt at work. Ross to testify that he had no problem with Anthony identifying as a woman when he was off duty, but merely that he didn't want him wearing a skirt while at the funeral home. Judge Cox found that gender identity is not a protected class under Title VII. Well, according to the court, Congress can change that by amending Title VII. It's not this court's role to create new protected classes under that title. But this past March, an appeals court ruled against RGGR, a Harris Funeral Homes, declaring they had indeed violated a federal anti-discrimination ban when firing Stevens. And now, last week, Nebraska's state Attorney General Doug Peterson filed a friend of the court uh, brief on behalf of 16 states, urging the United States Supreme Court to hear the funeral homes case. In the brief, Peterson argues that Congress never intended for Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to address discrimination against gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender employees. He also is claiming that the Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, in ruling against the funeral home, has remade the law to its own liking. Well, if the United States Supreme Court does indeed take up the funeral homes case, it remains unknown whether the Department of Justice under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, at least for now, will allow the EEOC to continue participating in the lawsuit. Sessions issued a memo last year stating the law does not cover discrimination against transgender individuals. The Title VII provision in question prevents employers from discriminating on the basis of race, color, religion, sex or national origin. Well, states joining the Nebraska, the state of Nebraska, rather, in filing the brief are Alabama, Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. We'll certainly follow the case and let you know if the Supreme Court decides to hear arguments for and against. And the seemingly ever-encroaching liberty-suppressing ideology known as political correctness was recently dealt a blow when the U.S. Army rejected the findings of an investigation into Chaplain Scott Squires over allegations of dereliction of duty for his refusal to facilitate a marriage retreat for homosexual couples. Squires is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, a Christian denomination that holds to biblical teachings on the sinfulness of certain lifestyles outside of the biblical norm, consequently forbidding its chaplains from facilitating the homosexual lifestyle. He argued that he was well within his right to refuse the request to administer the retreat based upon the rule that he must follow the guidelines established by his endorsing agency. Well, Squires noted that he made sure another chaplain could help the soldier who had made the request, but for those seeking to force everyone to capitulate to certain views on sexuality, this was not good enough. And so the Army launched an investigation into whether Squires' refusal amounted to sexual discrimination. Fortunately, after the investigation, the Army ruled ruled in Squire's favor, rejecting any notion that he had engaged in discrimination. Mike Berry, Deputy General Counsel and Director of Military Affairs to First Liberty, the group that represented Squire, said the United States military is no place for anti-religious hostility against its own military chaplains. Chaplains like Scott Squire and Assistant Casey Griffin do not have to give up their First Amendment rights in order to serve their fellow soldiers. It's becoming a repeated pattern that if any discrimination occurs, it's against those who hold true to their religious convictions on uh, subjects that 
uh, have become uh, have come to the fore. Unfortunately, the classic notion of live and let live is no longer considered an acceptable expression of tolerance for those motivated by politically correct and tyrannical views of morality. Um, the well, we've mentioned that. Furthermore, the military should not be the primary battleground for waging the culture war, as Nicole Russell of the Washington Examiner writes. It's imperative that the military and its resources remain focused on the task at hand, defending this country here and abroad, rather than concern itself with whether a chaplain discriminating against someone else's right to a marriage retreat in violation of their own conscience. These issues are not only a distraction from the purpose of the military, but a frivolous effort that cloaks political correctness and discrimination and requires members of faith to violate their conscience for another's demand. Well, we'll see what um, what happens moving forward. But in this case, the chaplain was permitted to stand his ground. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Wayne Grudem. Christian Ethics, an introduction to biblical moral reasoning. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Let me ask you a few questions. Is lying ever permissible? Will we ever face an impossible moral conflict? Are we really supposed to obey every command in Scripture? And why is viewing pornography wrong? Well, many Christians, many of us recognize the Bible as our guide, but we struggle to know whether... (laughs) whether we're interpreting the scripture rightly in the face of difficult ethical questions and many others. Well, how should Christians live when the surrounding culture is increasingly hostile to biblical moral values? Well, in Christian Ethics, an introduction to biblical moral reasoning, my guest, author and professor, Dr. Wayne Grudem, he draws on 40 years of teaching ethics to help Christians think biblically about a wide-ranging list of ethical topics. He writes, I have written this book for Christians who want to understand what the Bible teaches about how to obey God faithfully in their daily lives. It's an invitation to delight in the goodness and beauty of God's moral standards because we understand that delight in those standards is really delight in the infinity, infinitely uh, good moral character of God himself. Again, the book, Christian Ethics. Well, Dr. Grudem is a research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary. Much of his teaching experience is focused on areas related to ethics. During his time at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota, he taught ethics uh, courses to undergraduate students. Over the course of his 20 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and his uh, current position at Phoenix Seminary, he frequently teaches graduate-level and elective courses on ethics. Dr. Grudem is is the author of over 25 books, including many related to ethical topics. Additionally, he served as the general editor of the uh, English Standard Version of the Bible, published by Crossway in uh, uh, 2008, and was the primary author of many uh, included articles related to ethics. Dr. Grudem is a former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, co-founder and former president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and a member of the Translation Oversight Committee for the English Standard Version of the Bible. He and his wife, Margaret, have been married since 1969. They have three adult sons, and we are just delighted uh, to have Dr. Grudem with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Good to be with you. This is an impressive volume, and it certainly will, uh, once I take it home again, uh, it will have a, a treasured place in my library. Uh, but it's, it's also a, a very large volume. Uh, how important is Christian ethics to the average uh, follower of Christ in terms of how we understand uh, what the Bible teaches and how we navigate in a culture that is oftentimes hostile to biblical principle? 
Well, I think, Georgine, that Christians, most Christians every day are wondering, what does God want me to do in this situation or that? Whether it's a workplace situation and it has to do with honesty regarding the quality of a product or a returned item for a, a store, whether it has to do with uh, truthfulness in speech when we show up late for an appointment and make an excuse for ourselves, whether it has to do with how to treat one another honorably and yet uh, not overstep bounds of propriety with regard to relationships to opposite-sex people that we're not married to, uh, whether it has to do with care for an aging parent and end-of-life issues. I mean, there are questions that, these are ethical questions that confront people every day, and I think that the Bible is given to us as a guide, a lamp to our feet, a light to mm -hmm. our path. It's given to train us in righteousness. Um, and uh, so I want to do... I wanted to write this book so that Christians would have help in finding out what the whole Bible says about how to decide ethical questions that face us each day. Well, let me ask you to whom this book is written, because with your credentials, um, our listeners might mistake this volume as being one that is heavily academic and written for those who are in an academic setting, when in fact, my understanding is it's for the average follower of Christ to have a clear biblical understanding. To whom is this book written? Well, I'm aiming at a wide audience, Georgine. I'm aiming at adult Christian readers. Um, on the one hand, I teach college and seminary classes, and I, I'm hoping that it will be used as a textbook in seminary courses in ethics and college courses in ethics. On the other hand, I've taught adult Sunday school classes or adult Bible classes in my own church for many years, and a lot of the material I've gone through and taught to ordinary adult Christians. And um, I'm trying to write in such a way that this material is understandable for people who haven't had advanced training in ethics and just are ordinary Christians. They love to read the Bible and they want to know what it says about how to live. Yeah, a tremendous resource. Well, Christian Ethics is the companion resource to your best-selling Systematic Theology. How has that volume, Systematic Theology, impacted Christians since it was released back in 1994? And how do you hope Christian Ethics will help as a companion? Well, I hear often, Georgiana, and I'm thankful to God for this, I hear often from Christians who say, this book, Systematic Theology, I thought it was too big and too hard to understand, but when I opened it, I found it was helping my Christian life and helping my relationship with God, as well as helping me understand what the Bible teaches about theology, such as concerning the Trinity or the deity of Christ or the atonement or the resurrection or justification or sanctification, all theological topics. This book, this new book, Christian Ethics, has to do with how we should live each day and our conduct in life, mm -hmm. what is pleasing to God. Paul tells the Colossian Christians in Colossians 1.10 that he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I apologize. We had some uh, short technical uh, difficulty. Can you, can you continue from where we had just finished? Georgiana, I'm not sure where we were. I was saying that Christians normally, I think today, want to know how to live in a way that's pleasing to God in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Paul said to the Colossian Christians that he wanted them to live in a way that is fully pleasing to God, and I think that should be our, our goal and our joy of uh, seeking to live in a way that God is pleased with each day. Not that we're perfect, but that as our loving Heavenly Father uh, watches us and lives with us and walks with us, Overall, I think we should find that he will be pleased with how we conduct our lives, how we speak, how we act, and the decisions we make uh, each day. 
Now, Christian ethics is structured around seven central tenets of God's law as found in the Ten Commandments. Can you share with us what those are and uh, why they're important uh, to us today in helping to understand the heart of God and uh, our desire to please Him? Well, Georgine, I've structured the book in seven parts. Part one is the introduction. It says the basis for ethics is the moral character of God. These aren't just made-up principles that humans have constructed. It's rather God himself has a, a pure and holy moral character, and from his moral character flow his moral standards. That's part one. Then part two is protecting God's honor, and I structured this around the Ten Commandments. So the first four commandments, you shall have no other gods, you shall not make a carved image, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Those are commandments one to three. Remember the Sabbath day, commandment four. I put those in the category of protecting God's honor, and I talk about uh, purity of speech and uh, how we speak about God and how we honor him. And I also put in here a treatment of lying and telling the truth, and and I argue that it's never right to lie. Well, that's part two, protecting God's honor. Protecting human authority is based on uh, commandment number five, honor your father and your mother in the Ten Commandments. I talk about the authority of parents in raising children, but I also talk about uh, authority in marriage. I think husbands have a leadership role in marriage uh, and uh, authority in civil government and how we are to relate to civil government as, as Christians. Part four it has to do with protecting human life. That's the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And I deal with issues of life and death here, capital punishment, war, self-defense, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, aging, and death. Those are issues related to um, protection and preservation of life. Uh, I also deal with quality of life issues there, having to do with racial discrimination and care for our health and alcohol and uh, drugs. Um, Part five is protecting marriage. Seventh Commandment says you shall not commit adultery, and I talk about marriage and sexual morality. Then uh, birth control, reproductive technology, in in vitro fertilization and related issues, pornography, divorce and remarriage, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Those all have to do with sexual ethics, and I categorize those under the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We go to the Eighth Commandment, uh, part six of the book, you shall not steal I talk about goodness, uh, the goodness and necessity of private ownership of property. Georgine, I, I talk about how I think God has given us this gift of the ownership of property as human beings, and it sets us apart from the animal kingdom, and it's part of uh, what it means to be created in the image of God. And we, we faintly reflect God's sovereignty over the whole creation when he gives us stewardship over some parts of creation. I talk about other economic-related issues, work and rest, vacations, uh, prosperity as it has increased over the course of centuries in the world, wealth and poverty, um, personal financial stewardship, and then business ethics and stewardship of the environment. All that is related to the sixth, to the eighth commandment: "You shall not steal." And finally, part seven: protecting purity of heart. The tenth commandment says, "You shall not covet," and that gives us an indication that God is concerned not only that we don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal, but in our hearts we shouldn't want to do those things either, because we should delight in God's moral standards and uh, his his commands to us, which are good and perfect and uh, should cause us pleasure and delight. So that's protecting purity of heart. Well, that's a, that's a quick overview of the whole book. Yeah, yeah. At the end of each uh, each chapter or each section, you offer extensive uh, bibliography uh, in order to uh, for each chapter in order 
for your reader to have further study. There are discussion questions, verses for memorization, even hymns that encourage uh, personal engagement. So this is not intended to just be an academic study, but we are encouraged as we're reading through to really consider what the scriptures have to say and how to internalize that and encourage our own heart along the way. I think that um, ethics isn't just something that's a, a sterile, mm-hmm. uh, barren ex- exercise. It's it's something, it talks about, really talking about a life lived in the presence of God and in fellowship with God, who should be the the uh, focus of our greatest delight and joy. And so I want to do what I can. That's that's why I have pres- questions for personal application and even hymns at the, at the end of each chapter. Um, I love singing hymns. Uh, and worship songs because they are a great means of bringing us in worship into the presence of yes. God. And I wanted people to do that in their study of ethics as well. Yes, yes. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Wayne Grudem. His latest book, Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning, an excellent resource and guide for those of us who want to live in a way that's uh, that's pleasing to God and to understand what his word teaches. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Wayne Grudem. His book is, his latest book is titled Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. Of the book, Professor John Kilner, who's the director of bioethics program at Trinity International University, he writes, so much in the field of ethics today merely describes the issues and the alternatives. The very idea that there is a right answer is to anything is anathema. In such stagnant climate, Christian ethics is a breath of fresh air. It demonstrates how the Bible provides specific answers to particular questions. However, this is not merely a compendium of Grudem's personal views on issues. Readers are challenged to think and given the material they need to do so in a God-honoring way. We are in Grudem's debt for this massive labor of love. It is a massive labor of of love, but I also want to emphasize that it is uh, highly approachable by the average Christian reader. It's uh, as he mentioned earlier. It's for adults, but it certainly uh, can help us uh, to think through, to study, to meditate on God's word, and to better understand how we are to navigate the culture that we uh, that we live in. Uh, Doctor Grudem, uh, you as we mentioned, there are seven central tenets of God's law that are uh, in found in the Ten Commandments. Um, that the book is, is centered around. You discuss 42 specific topics. Many of them are in the 21st century divisive, racial discrimination, birth control, war, homosexuality, transgenderism, which helps us to really connect life as we know it today to what God's word has to say. Um, let me ask you to talk about why you thought it was important to include these topics in a book on Christian ethics. Well, I think that God gave us his word so that we could know how to live. And his word, as I said, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's given to give us, even at God breathed to help us for training in righteousness. And these are real life questions that people confront today, the ones that you mentioned mm-hmm. and many others. Um, I think that God knew when he put together the Bible and had it inspired its authorship, he knew that we'd confront these questions in the 21st century, and he made provision in his word to teach us what we needed to know in order to make wise decisions in these areas. 
Now, one of the things I've often heard with regard to uh, those who object to Christian moral ethics is, well, that particular word, that particular idea doesn't isn't present in the Bible. For example, the word abortion. Um, where there are principles that can help us understand God's intent. Can you uh, differentiate between specific commands that relate to specific issues that we might identify and principles that we find in Scripture that inform our thinking about uh, what God intends for us as his followers as we confront these issues? Yes, I think what we find in the Bible is a general command like you shall not murder, which is the uh, sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And that command, you shall not murder, applies to the wrongful taking of human life. And of course, if the word abortion doesn't apply, if the uh, unborn child is considered as a person, which I believe it is, uh, then taking intentionally taking the life of the unborn child is prohibited by the command, you shall not murder. Um, I suppose someone could say um, uh, assassination by a rifle isn't named in the Bible, but <laughs> it's certainly Im- implied by the command, you mm-hmm. shall not murder. Um, and then the Bible also talks about specific things related to the unborn child. Uh, there's a passage in the Laws of Moses in Exodus 21 where two men are struggling and hit unintentionally, I think hit a woman with child, and she uh, gives birth prematurely, and there's a penalty, even if there's no harm done, but if there's harm done, uh, the penalty is you give life for life. Uh, the unborn child and and its mother <clears throat> were given very high level of protection in Israelite society, and I think that reflects God's care for the unborn. Absolutely. Now, you taught ethics courses in colleges and seminaries for some 40 years. Has the topic of Christian ethics changed over the years, and in what ways has it remained the same? Well, I think 40 years ago, um, everyone in my classes assumed without argument that homosexual behavior conduct uh, was morally wrong, contrary to the commands of Scripture. We don't have Christians coming into classes always assuming that today. I think Christians um, 40 years ago we're pretty much in agreement that it's wrong for a man and a woman to uh, have sex together before they're married or to live together. But uh, many Christians don't assume that today. And those are just, and I think in the area of truthfulness in speech, <clears throat> we have um, much lower regard for the need of truthful speech. Uh, that's common, untruthful speech is common in society. And I think that that tendency has slipped into the Christian world as well. So, Uh, The culture is pushing us in the wrong direction in many of these areas. Do you think we are, and I'm overgeneralizing here, but do you think we generally are more influenced by the culture and less familiar with or less willing to submit ourselves to what God's Word teaches in these areas? Or a combination of both? uh, You're right, it's hard to generalize because there are many Christians, including those probably that you and I know in our own home fellowships and our own churches, who daily seek to live in a way that is pleasing to God and honoring to Him and uh, resist the pressures of the culture. But we can't deny that the pressures of the culture and the assumptions of the culture are very influential and very strong. Now, in the book, um, Christian Ethics, you encourage your readers to think and to formulate their own ethical opinions on these timeless uh, and timely topics. Uh, Was that a challenge for you not to insert your personal conclusions, which would be based on biblical uh, principles while writing this book and trusting that your readers would be guided by the Holy Spirit 
in drawing the the correct uh, conclusion to some of these or quest- correct answers to some of these uh, challenging questions. Yeah, well, Georgine, what I did in order to try to uh, be fair to readers, where there were differences of viewpoint among Christians in the uh, in the literature, in the ethics textbooks, for instance, I tried to quote people who had opposite views and say, here's what they say. Some, in many cases, there are other professors who are at other institutions, but they've been my friends for years. But I respectfully disagree with them on, oh, issues of whether it's ever right to tell a lie. I think it never is. Um, Christians differ on issues of uh, when is it right for when is divorce and remarriage right. Uh, they differ on issues of birth control um, and a number of other issues. But I try in every case to quote representatives of the position I'm arguing against and say, here's what this other person, sometimes my friend, uh, this other person would say, and here's my response to that. I do give conclusions. I do give my own conclusions, but I try to do that in a way that fairly represents differing viewpoints in the Christian world today. What would you say is the most common ethical dilemma facing Christians today? That's a hard question, Georgine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What comes to my mind off the top of my head is carelessness in lying. Hmm. People are just, you know, they come late to a meeting and make up an excuse and say, oh, the traffic was unusually bad today when it wasn't. That, That... that kind of thing. Well, we've redefined and, and created a gradation of lies. Some are more offensive than others, and we think that telling a simple untruth that you've just described and one that's much more serious, that somehow God overlooks the, the former but uh, frowns upon the latter. Uh, so it has become very common among us to make excuses for ourselves through the means of exaggeration and lying. I think so, and what you get in ethics textbooks, of course, is these very hard cases of attempting, you know, you're hiding Jews in the basement and Nazi soldiers are pounding on the door and do you lie and tell them there are no Jews in your house? Those very hard situations which most people in their lifetime will never face. But that becomes a wedge, kind of an, hmm. an, an excuse for saying, well, sometimes we have to lie, and and my coworker had to go home early to take care of her sick child, and so I'll... I'll punch out her time card um, an hour later just because she needs the help, and all of a sudden there's a moral compromise and we've done something untruthful or, or spokenly, spoken or acted untruthfully. So um, I think, no, um, God himself never lies. His moral character is the standard by which he decides what is right and wrong for us, and he tells us, uh, many, many times in Scripture, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, no one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. I have page after page of these things. Uh, putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, uh, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Again and again and again, so that we can't miss the point if we're listening that God tells us we have an obligation to speak truthfully. Well, this is an excellent volume. I thank you so much for making it available to followers of Jesus who take their faith seriously and want to please him. Again, the book is titled Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. Dr. Grudem, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure, Georgine. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new way to categorize Americans by religion. It's called religious typology. Most U.S. adults uh, identify with a particular religious denomination or group. They describe themselves as Catholic or Baptist, Methodist, Jewish, Mormon, or Muslim, to name just a few of the hundreds of identities or affiliations that people give in a survey. Well, others describe themselves as atheist, agnostic, and say that they have no particular religious affiliation. These are the conventional categories into which Americans sort themselves. But there's a new Pew Research study analysis that looks at beliefs and behaviors that cut across many denominations, important traits that unite people of different faiths, or that divide people who have the same religious affiliation. Well, producing a new and revealing classification or typology of religion in America. Well, the new typology sorts Americans into seven groups based on the religious and spiritual beliefs they share, how actively they practice their faith, the value they place on their religion and other sources, meaning and the uh, fulfillment in their lives. Now, the use of religion is oftentimes uh, rejected by followers of Jesus because we don't see this as a religion. We see it as a relationship. But for the purpose of conducting a survey, it's uh, it's an important and, and useful word to help describe those who are men and women of faith, uh, of for that matter, varying faiths or religious beliefs. Well, race, ethnicity, age, education, political opinions were not among the characteristics used to create these groups. Some of the groups have strong partisan leanings or distinctive demographic profiles, illuminating the intrinsic connections between religion, race, and politics in America. There are, as um, Pew put it, the Sunday stalwarts. They're the most religious group. Uh, Not only do they actively practice their faith, but they also are deeply involved in their religious congregations or communities. God and country believers are less active in church groups or other religious organizations, but like the Sunday stalwarts, uh, they hold many traditional religious beliefs and tilt right on, society, on societal and uh, political issues. They're the most likely of any group to see immigrants as a threat. Racial and ethnic minorities make up a relatively large share of the uh, diversely devout who are diverse not only demographically but also in their beliefs. It's um, the only group in which solid majorities say that they believe in God as described in the Bible, as well as in physics, reincarnation, spiritual energy located in the physical thing. So this is a very broad, as a word uh, they chose, diverse group, but they are devout in terms of what they um, espouse. At the opposite end of the spectrum, the solidly secular, they're the least religious of the seven groups. These relatively affluent, highly educated U.S. adults, mostly white and male, tend to describe themselves as neither religious nor spiritual and to uh, reject all New Age beliefs as well as belief in the God of the Bible. In fact, many don't believe in a higher power at all. Then there are the um, religion resistors. I know that solidly secular may have sounded like religion resistors, but... Um, they are uh, a different group, largely. They don't believe in uh, some higher power or spiritual force, but not the God of the Bible, or rather, um, they do believe in some higher power. And many have some New Age beliefs, consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. At the same time, members in this particular group, they express strongly negative views of organized religion. Apparently, they prefer disorganized religion, saying that churches have too much influence in politics and that overall religion does more harm than good. Now, both of these uh, non-religious uh, typology groups are generally liberal and democratic in their political views. So there's another uh, thing that divides. The middle two groups uh, straddle the border between the highly religious and the non-religious. Seven in ten 
fall into the relaxed religious. These relaxed religious Americans say that they believe in the God of the Bible and four in ten pray daily, but relatively few attend religious services or read scripture, and they almost unanimously say it's not necessary to believe in God to be a moral person. Then there are the spiritually awake Americans. They hold at least some New Age beliefs, views rejected by most of the relaxed religious, and believe in God in some higher power, though many don't believe in the biblical God and relatively few attend religious services on a weekly basis. Well, although traditional religious affiliation categories weren't um, used as a determining factor in making these typology groups, as they're being called, it's um, nonetheless illuminating to look at each group's religious composition. And while there are clear patterns across uh, groups. No typology group is uniform in its affiliation with regard to religion. Well, this shows that members of widely disparate religious traditions sometimes have a lot in common. Sunday stalwarts, for example, are largely Protestant, but also include Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and others. Okay, they may attend services, but they are very different kinds of services, worshiping very different kinds of deities. Well, among the highly religious uh, typology groups, rather, the religious identity profiles of Sunday stalwarts and God and country believers are very similar. Majorities in each of those groups are Protestant and evangelical. Um, Protestantism constitutes the single largest religious tradition in both of those groups compared with Sunday stalwarts. God and country believers include more Catholics and religiously unaffiliated affiliated Americans and somewhat fewer Mormons. So anyway, it's kind of an interesting way to look at uh, faith in our culture uh, across uh, our society and those who uh, reject faith altogether and everything in between. You can find more about that at pewforum.org. Again, the religious typology, they offer percentages of who believes what and what category people fall into. And if you'd like to better understand um, your neighbor's without necessarily labeling them, but having a better understanding of the makeup of our country today. Uh, This might be uh, worth taking a look at. Again, pewforum.org. I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you're interested in uh, checking that out. Well, tomorrow is Fun Friday, and we're looking forward to the Friday before a long weekend. I also have an opportunity to interview Michael Jr., who is my all-time favorite comedian. Uh, He's going to be performing here in, uh, in Portland Um, in a couple of weeks uh, in September. So we're going to have an opportunity to talk with him and give you an opportunity to hear some of his wonderful uh, comedy. So I'm looking forward to uh, sharing that conversation with Michael Jr. Also, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Dr. Wayne Grudem, his latest book is Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. It's an excellent resource for believers who want to understand what the Bible teaches on uh, some very clear issues and some that are more uh, controversial in the 21st century. You can check that out. You can go to kpdq.com and check out the podcast and you can listen to the full conversation, which began at about 515. And for that matter, previous conversations that we have. Now, you can also find out what we, um, who we interviewed for the most part at kpdq.com. Look for the Georgine Rice Show. You can find the name of the book and author that we may have uh, spoken with uh, going back some uh, sometime or go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page and there you'll have an image of the book in most cases, as well as details on um, who the author was. So if you're interested in um, following up, that's a great way to do just that. All right. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.